Welcome everyone to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Andrea Spiker from the University of Wisconsin. Today, I am joined by Dr. James Wiley, who is the Associate Medical Director for Hip and Knee Preservation and Director of Orthopedic Research for Intermountain Health in Salt Lake City, Utah. Dr. Wiley was the senior author of the article titled, Combined Borderline Acetabular Dysplasia and Increased Femoral Antiversion is Associated with Worse Outcomes in Female Patients Undergoing Hip Arthroscopy for Femoral Acetabular Impingement, which was published in the April 2023 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal. Dr. Wiley's co-authors were Jennifer Marland, Brandy Horton, Jason Smythe, and Hugh West. Welcome, Dr. Wiley, and thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Jim, can you tell us about yourself and your current practice? Yeah, so I'm about five years into practice. I, uh, like you, did a you know, orthopedic residency, did a sports medicine fellowship, and then did a second year of uh, hip preservation fellowship so that I could do comprehensive um, hip preservation surgery. So I do rotational osteotomies, periostabular osteotomies, hip arthroscopy, kind of anything in that uh, non-arthroplasty world, kind of, but not the peds world. Um, and then I also do knee, so I do a lot of knee osteotomies, uh, cartilage work, ligament work, meniscal stuff. And I'm probably about 60% hip and 40% knee. Um, kind of varies depending on the week. I don't do any shoulder or elbow or anything like that. And then I uh, manage our uh, help manage our research program, um, and I do some administrative work for our system, which is a, now a 35-hospital, 400-clinic uh, system across five states. So a lot going on there. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah, I love I love your pa- practice makeup. You know, it sounds, I, I agree, it's um, living the dream of hip and knee uh, preservation surgery, which is awesome. So Jim, the paper we're discussing today sought to determine the relationship between increased femoral antiversion and borderline dysplasia in a female cohort of patients. So can you start by telling us why you decided to look at these variables and why female patients in particular? Yeah, so, um, you know, as someone who sees a lot of, of hip patients, a lot of young hip patients, you know, my decision point and my thought process about these patients, oh, it, the first kind of fork in the road is always, are they male or female? Um, and as you probably know from your practice, it's almost like dealing with a different joint, dealing with a female hip compared to a male hip. You kind of go in with the, you know, maybe 50-50 instability versus impingement in the female group, where you're probably, you know, 90% impingement in the male group, 10% instability. And so uh, part of this was Jenny Marlin, who's the first author on the paper. She is a uh, hip preservation patient uh, in the past, and she's a physical therapist. And she started kind of this journey with Dr. West probably in 2008 when he started doing hip arthroscopy. And the females were of more interest to her partly because she was the patient. And when you look, when you think about a female hip versus a male hip, I, I think the outcomes, uh, looking at the outcomes, it's much more important to look at it on a sex-specific um, outcomes because, like I said, when you're evaluating these patients, uh, they're almost like different different kinds of patients. And then as far as the variables, what we're always trying to kind of the, what we're always trying to figure out in hip patients, is it instability or is it impingement? Because, or obviously in older patients, is it arthritis? But those of us that deal mostly with young patients, it's about deciphering which one of those it is. So it's actually, there's a, there's a couple papers from this cohort. This paper looks specifically at the femoral antiversion side of it. 
and looking at kind of borderline dysplastics versus non-borderline dysplastics. A prior paper in AJSM, we actually looked at the fear index and the anterior wall index. So kind of other variables, if, if you if your first screen for borderline dysplasia is a lateral center edge angle under 25, then kind of what else can you add to that that pushes you towards instability or pushes you towards impingement? And so in this cohort, we're kind of looking at the other kind of secondary measurement variables that that you can use to determine whether someone's unstable. So in the other AGSM paper that we published, we looked at an anterior wall index of less than 0.35 or a fear index that opened laterally. And kind of and that along with increased femoral antiversion were three variables that kind of pushed us more towards an instability diagnosis. So that's where we kind of, you know, broke this up based on uh, these variables. Well, I certainly applaud you for focusing on the female patient cohort. You know, even within your your paper introduction and discussion, you mentioned some of these prior studies that really have had some mixed results related specifically to femoral antiversion and outcomes after hip arthroscopy. Um, but just as you mentioned, you know, there's so many certain aspects of the, the female hip that are different than male hips, including that higher likelihood of antiversion of both the acetabulum and the femur, the higher likelihood of ligamentous laxity. And um, I, I really like how you think of it as, as almost a completely different joint. It's interesting. I mean, do you think of you know, we've both been through sports medicine fellowships separate from hip preservation fellowships. Do you think that there is any other joint in the body where we approach it on such a sex difference as we do the hip? I mean, I think maybe some patellofemoral stuff in the knee. You know, males are more commonly traumatic patellofemoral instability and females are more commonly probably kind of atraumatic um, due to, you know, whether it's antiversion or ligamentous laxity or whatever other variables are driving that. But I think I think the hip is kind of unique in in the sex differences and and like you talk about with some of those prior papers, yeah. If you if if your selection process for patients for arthroscopy is biased towards you know say doing males, then you have a then you retrospectively look at your cohort of patients and you say, well, look at I did the all these borderline dysplastics and they all did fine with arthroscopy. Well. If a lot of those patients are male and don't have these secondary markers that push you to a more unstable hip, then potentially that paper says that borderline dysplastics do fine with arthroscopy, but there's a bit of a bias in the patient selection that pushes you towards more of an impingement hip than an unstable hip. So that's kind of why we wanted to look at all these different variables that push you in the other direction towards more of an unstable hip. Yeah, and it comes at a, a good time as well. I think a lot of these bigger cohort studies have been showing that more and more of the uh, numbers of patients undergoing hip arthroscopy tend to be predominantly female. And so I think it's mm -hmm. really important as more of these, uh, you know, more patients are female that we really understand the nuances of the female hip. Agreed. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you personally evaluate for borderline dysplasia and femoral antiversion in your practice? You mentioned a couple of the other uh, radiographic indices that you use, but tell us a little bit more about your clinical evaluation and you know how you determine that instability versus impingement when that patient walks in your clinic door. Sure. Um, I mean, I think like with any patient evaluation, it, it starts, you know, they walk in, you know, you get a history. And is it the patient that, you know, can't sit in a desk or, you know, has problems, you know, being on an airplane or what, you know, 
all sitting squatting type complaints or is it the patient that uh, has a lot of pain standing for long periods of time you know has you know running is a big issue kind of these weight bearing um kind of hip and extension type activities potentially you know that might be more i mean the hip can hurt in doing anything but um you know is that pushing you more as a thought process of oh is this a, an instability and then kind of as you move into the physical examination um you know what is there you know i get them supine with their hip at 90 degrees of flexion measure internal external rotation I also always get them prone and do internal external rotation uh, as far as range of motion. Uh, you know, if someone is, you know, probably under 20 degrees of internal rotation and flexion, then it makes me start thinking maybe this is an impingement hip. If I get in there and they have 50 or 60 degrees of internal rotation, I'm thinking they're probably an unstable hip. Um, you know, even if their, you know, quote unquote impingement test or fader is positive, um, you know, when they have a really excessive internal rotation, say over 40 or 45 degrees, it starts putting instability on my radar. Uh, as far as how I work through my uh, examination, I do, you know, a fader, a faber, looking for that it's intraarticular pain. And then I do the uh, apprehension tests where the other side is uh, flexed up to the chest and I kind of drop the affected side off the table. And I ask the patient two questions. I ask them, if it hurts, where does it hurt? And, you know, you're looking probably for articular pain hurting, uh, you know, in the groin area, hopefully. <laughs> but then I'm also asking, like when you do a load shift or an apprehension test in the shoulder, I'm asking, does this make you feel apprehensive? Do you not want this in this position? Do you feel like it? it's not like a shoulder that, you know, God forbid you dislocate someone's shoulder in the office, but it uh, people get that sensation or they get squirmy on the bed and they're kind of just like uncomfortable putting in that position, that can give you an idea that maybe this is a instability situation. And then obviously some of these patients come in having had prior surgeries and, and in the history part, understanding what they had done, you know, if they've had a prior arthroscopy, you know, hopefully having records or, uh, an under, or maybe they bring their pictures and understanding was the capsule closed because obviously there's, these are things that can contribute to uh, an unstable hip. And then as, uh, you know, as of course we all do the imaging first and measure everything so we have an idea of what we're thinking before we go in. But, you know, moving on to imaging, I, you know, I start with the lateral and anterior center of jangle so we get a standing EP and a false profile on everyone. And I measure it to the end of the sore seal, not the end of the bone. If you have that kind of thick sclerotic area that comes out and then it it kind of goes away as sclerosis, but then goes further to the back wall. I don't really count that non-sclerotic area. And me and Travis Mack wrote a paper about that um, God, probably five or six years ago now where we correlated it to CT. And in an inverted hip, when you measure all the way to the bone edge, you're actually measuring more posteriorly as you get out back to the posterior wall. So you want to measure to that source seal edge. And that source seal edge gives you about the one o'clock clock position. If you think of 12 as neutral and then one o'clock as that anterior area. So you're truly measuring that kind of anterior lateral coverage. And then on the false profile, I again measure it to that sclerotic source seal. And like I talked about, like, you know, are they male or are they female? And then what's their lateral center of jangle? And if it's under 25, it starts putting display, you know, under 20, definitely that's kind of dysplasia until proven otherwise. Under 25, you know, that 20 to 25 borderline range, kind of thinking about putting on that, that borderline kind of area now starting to think about in the measurements, what else is going on with this hip and, you know, then anterior center edge, you know, if they're 
you're 23 on their lateral center edge, but they're 14 on their anterior center edge. Again, that's pointing me more to an unstable hip. And then the other measurements on the on the AP, I normally measure the anterior wall index, the poster wall index, and a low anterior wall index is again a sign of that anterior under coverage. Obviously, some people are have borderline dysplasia but are retroverted on the socket, so they have posterior wall um, index uh, deficiency. Uh, you know, where the anterior wall index should be about 0.4 in a quote-unquote normal hip, and the posterior wall index should be about one. And all of those things, I'm starting to formulate in my head. Okay, the you know anterior the lateral center edge is 21. You know the anterior center edge is 20. The anterior wall index is 0.2. All of those things are pointing me towards an unstable hip. You know, and then obviously during the physical exam, also the bait and criteria. Uh, if they have 909 bait and criteria, you almost have to prove to me your impingement. Um, because I find those patients don't don't do as well with arthroscopy, um, and then the CT generally comes later. I don't always get a CT. I would say the vast majority of the borderline people I'm considering doing a PAO in, I do get um, a CT just because I think the antiversion helps you. Again, if their antiversion is three degrees, you're probably going to pick that up on physical exam. But if their antiversion is 30 degrees, those are both ones that can point you towards an impingement hip or a um, unstable hip. Um, so the CT generally would come kind of probably, you know, maybe you send them off to PT, get their pelvis stable, you know, get them strong, see if that helps, injection to make sure it's intraarticular pain. And then I kind of say, hey, if you're doing, if you do these things and you're not feeling better and you're frustrated, I would normally get an arthrogram and a CT scan before the next visit when they come back and they would call in and say, hey, I'm not doing well. Can you order that imaging? And then they come back for the next visit. And then you start adding those CT parameters to, uh, you know, whether it's femoral antiversion or acetabular antiversion um, that start helping you figure out whether that's a stable or an unstable hip. As you describe it, it it all makes sense to me. And, And on the other hand, I'm also thinking wow, this has got to sound very complex to somebody who may not do all that much hip. (laughs) And so I was thinking that, you know, both you and I did the sequence of a sports medicine fellowship first and then a hip preservation fellowship. And as you were describing all this, I was thinking, you know, what changed? Because, you know, myself, I did hip arthroscopy and hip in my sports fellowship. And then suddenly, you know, doing a year of that hip preservation fellowship, what were the things that I added? And I think you mentioned a lot of them. I think the prone evaluation of the patient was something I added and then probably about 10 more radiographic measurements that I added from <laughs> right. what I did from sports fellowship. Would you find that that's your experience too? Yeah. I mean, I, I was for, I went to the university of Utah for, you know, residency. So I was a bit fortunate in that I had Chris Peters and Steve Aoki as uh, kind of mentors on the residency side. So I think I got a little more nuanced understanding of the hip and Andy Anderson's there doing all his three-dimensional modeling and, you know, biplane fluoroscopy and all those sorts of things. So I think I got a bit more of a um, kind of nuanced understanding as a resident. Um, But yes, I went off to my sports fellowship and it was kind of like, oh, this is the alpha angle and they have a positive fader. Seems like, you know, and their center edge is over 20, so they don't have dysplasia. So it, you know, this is, you know, an impingement case. So but I think, yeah, and then, you know, you go off and you start thinking about all these other things, and then, you know, it, it almost makes it more complicated, <laughs> exactly. um, where you were like, oh, this was easier, I thought, before. But I, I think it's because in the long run, hopefully, it helps you take better care of those patients because you're actually understanding the hip better. 
Right. And I think papers like the one that you published, I mean, really spell it out for us so that you can say in female patients who have borderline dysplasia, you know, those are the patients that you look at their antiversion and consider this before you indicate them for hip arthroscopy. So I think we're getting there. We're simplifying right. it along the way, but, um, but that's great. I think another take home you can take from the paper, when we looked at the patients that had a lateral center edge over 25, but had high antiversion, they did really well with arthroscopy. So, you know, if, if you have the socket that makes it so the hip isn't an unstable hip, you know, your center edge is 30, and yes, you have, you know, say 28 or 30 degrees of antiversion, but you have a cam, you know, this paper also suggests that those patients are going to do okay with arthroscopy because they have the socket that can make their hip stable. That's a great point. Yeah. And that's very helpful information too, because I think other studies have, have brought that into question. So back to the study a little bit more. Uh, once again, the results showed that female patients with borderline hip dysplasia and increased femoral version had worse outcomes after hip arthroscopy for femoral acetabular impingement. You mentioned that those with normal acetabular coverage had more normal results, even if they had increased antiversion. So given these findings, how are you now counseling your patients with borderline dysplasia and femoral antiversion? Yeah, so I would say more of these patients at this this point get a PAO in my practice. And, and so then there's the question of, well, if they have borderline dysplasia and femoral antiversion of 30, you know, when do you do the socket and when do you do the femur and, you, you know, from a rotational osteotomy standpoint, and when do you do both? My general experience, and I think all of my mentors and, and many of my colleagues like you, is that the PAO has the most powerful way to make the hip stable and that it seems to have the most predictable outcome uh, as far as surgical outcomes. Obviously, we didn't look at that in this paper. We have a pretty big cohort of, um, you know, borderline dysplastics that got arthroscopy and now a developing pretty big cohort of borderline dysplastics that are getting PAO. So potentially in the future, we may be, uh, hopefully be able to match these patients together and do a bit of a um, comparison. But in my practice, if you're a borderline dysplastic that, you know, we look at all these other factors that we discussed before, and it feels like your hip is an unstable hip, then, I mean, I do 40 or 50 PAOs a year. I'm not afraid to just say, hey, I think the best surgery for you is a PAO now. I've also, you know, some when you have the PAO discussion with patients, some patients look at you sideways and say, "Oh my god, I'm not going to let you do that." You know, in this in this group, maybe not that hit all of the predictors of poor outcome, but you know, in the borderline dysplastic group, I also sometimes have the discussion, the pa you know, patient, you know, gets a say in in what they have done. So, we um, you know, we have a long discussion and I say, "I think you're probably best you know, uh, stabilizing your hip. Now, probably half of my PAOs get a scope at the same time. So if they have an alpha angle of 60 and some labral stuff and, you know, they're borderline dysplastic, I'm probably just going to do both at the same time and address it all in, in one setting. But, you know, I will have a discussion of, well, we have research that says, um, you know, you're probably not going to do as well with just the arthroscopy, but some people are like, well, that other surgery sounds crazy. So uh, how about we do the arthroscopy first? And then if, if I fail, I'll, I'll do the PAO. Um, and I've had some patients that I went through this process with that, you know, they were center edge angle of 21 and anterior center edge was 20. And, you know, they had a 65 alpha angle and they had a stiff, you know, antiversion was normal and they had a stiff hip, you know, and I treated them as impingement. I did a really good job with, you know, four full thickness stitches in their capsule, 
you know, thought I did what I could best uh, arthroscopically and they did good for six months and they were happy. And then they petered off in that six to 12 month range. And they came back at a year with the same IHOT they had before surgery. And some of those I've done PAOs in and they're doing great. And I think that experience has also made me more suggest in these patients that I feel like have an instability component to their pain with borderline dysplasia that we should just do the PAO. I think it's the most powerful surgery that we have in hip preservation. Um, and if you look at John Clohissey's recent, you know, JBJS paper on um, borderline dysplastics, I think he had 180 or something outcome scores, you know, at, I think it was at two years in, you know, the 80s and 90s, which, you know, if you do a lot of arthroscopy in the borderline population, I I don't feel like we get them that good. That's excellent. So to finish our conversation today, what are some of the questions that you think we still need to answer to better understand the the hips that we've been discussing and maybe in particular the female hips that we evaluate? Yeah, I mean, I, I, based on these couple of papers we wrote, like I, I would be a big proponent for you know, all of our hip outcome papers being uh, sex specific, I, I think we're going to hopefully be publishing on a male cohort coming up of just males, you know, and, and maybe find some differences. I think when you mix both genders together, you kind of wash out some of the signal from one gender or the other. And I think some important, you know, stuff to still question with females is we didn't have eight in criteria. I mean, it's kind of a surrogate, meaning that I feel like in my practice, the patients that are anterior wall deficient or, you know, have lateral fear indexes or have a lot of antiversion, they kind of have that, you know, higher Baton criteria uh, preponderance. Um, but that's another one that um, when when in this patient, when you're, if you do arthroscopy, the, what you're really relying on is getting a good capsular scarring and healing to, um, you know, plication or or whatever, uh, I can't emphasize how important the capsule is if you are doing arthroscopy um, uh, in the borderline, especially females. And so I think it papers on in females on the, the effect of bait and criteria and kind of, kind of tying all of these things together, which is obviously really hard when you have smaller cohorts, but maybe as we're now, we're putting together this, you know, national uh, registry potentially and some of the NASH and some of these other bigger cohorts maybe with higher numbers can, you know, look at which which of these variables are the actual drivers because, you know, antiversion or wall index or whatever might be drowned out by, you know, people with over six or seven, you know, on the Baton scale. It's just truly that the soft tissues can't handle an arthrotomy in the part of the hip that can become unstable. All very incredibly important points. So thank you so much. And thank you for spending the time with us today, uh, going over this paper and then sharing your expertise. I really appreciate it, Jim. All right. Thanks for having me, Andrea. Dr. Wiley's article titled Combined Borderline Acetabular Dysplasia and Increased Femoral Antiversion is Associated with Worse Outcomes in Female Patients Undergoing Hip Arthroscopy for Femoral Acetabular Impingement can be found online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. This concludes our episode of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. 